Well, we are uh, in our Easter series uh, on the road to Easter Sunday. Uh, last week, we began the series uh, at sort of the, the beginning of the sequence of passages that we are going to look at. We're going to be in John 18 and 19. Uh, we're looking at the scenes in the Easter story between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. And last week, we saw sort of the very beginning of, of this uh, the sequence of scenes. Uh, we saw Pilate and the Jewish leaders. They brought Jesus, and there was some, some interaction, some tension, some kind of verbal sparring between them. And today, uh, we see Pilate begin to actually interrogate Jesus directly. And so he's going to bring Jesus into his headquarters and start to ask him some questions. And so without further ado, we're going to jump into this, uh, this passage and then see what God, has, what God has for us. So here's John 18, beginning in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. We're going to pause there. Just a little, little chunk, a little bit further on in the story. And the first thing we need to do is uh, make sure we understand what's going on in the process of the trial. Uh, because John actually is, is kind of missing uh, a piece. If you remember last week uh, when the Jewish leaders brought Jesus... Pilate said to them, what accusations do you bring uh, against this man? He wanted to know, what are the charges? What, what's the, the big deal? And if you remember last week, they didn't really answer the question. They, they didn't actually give him the, the charges. But here in our text, it, Pilate's acting as if he already knows the accusations that they have brought. And that's just because John has skipped over uh, a part. Not sure why, but he just focused on other areas. But Luke fills us in. Luke, in telling the story, uh, includes this. So here's Luke 23, verse 2. And they begin, began to accuse him, so to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So those are the three accusations uh, that the Jewish leaders bring against Jesus initially. Uh, the first one, misleading our nation, is frankly fairly, it's fairly vague. Like, it, it's not clear exactly what that would mean or, or how you would prove that, and Pilate doesn't seem to take much note of it. The second one, forbidding giving tribute to Caesar, that is, that is a big deal, especially for the Romans. They love their taxes. That's what this means, right? That Jesus would be forbidding people to pay taxes. That, that is a big deal for Rome, right? That's how Rome is supported through all the, the taxes. But if, if we remember, the Pharisees already tried to trap Jesus in this net in terms of paying taxes, and Jesus outmaneuvered them if you remember, he, he made very clear that's totally fine with him for his people, for all people to pay taxes to the government. He took a coin and said, whose picture's on the coin? They said, Caesar. He's like, then give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, right? He said, this is, this is not a big deal for me. So we don't know if Pilate knew about that, you know, interchange, but, but clearly Pilate does not, you know, seem to think that accusation is a big deal either. The third one, though, gets Pilate's attention. Uh, he is saying that he is Christ, a king. Now, for anyone to claim uh, to be a king puts them in direct conflict with Rome. Uh, this is the issue that he takes up with Jesus. So when, when he goes inside into the headquarters, the first question, are you the king of the Jews? Now, Jesus' response seems a bit 
like he's kind of sidestepping the issue because he answers the question with a question. He says, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? But he's not sidestepping the issue. This, this actually is an important point of clarification because he's really saying, look, from what point of view are you asking this question? Because the answer will be different. If Pilate's asking this question from a Roman point of view, then the answer would be no. No, Jesus isn't a political king in the way that Rome thinks that they would be a threat to Rome. But if he's asking from a Jewish point of view, then the answer would be yes. Yes, he is in fact the Messiah. He is in fact the king of the Jews. And you can see from Pilate's response that he doesn't, he doesn't even want to play games. He's like, am I a Jew? Right, your own nation, the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? He's saying, I'm a Roman. I don't, I don't care about Jewish issues. I just want to know, have you done anything to oppose Caesar's Rome? That, that's, that he, that's what he wants to know, the empire. And this is where the dialogue uh, gets to a much deeper level in Jesus' response here in verse 36. It, it gets very close to the heart of who Jesus is and what he is all about. Because Jesus is not here just defending himself in a criminal case. He, he's testifying to his nature as the Messiah and his purposes on earth. And we see the, the sort of importance of what he's saying uh, through a comment that the Apostle Paul makes about this scene. It's kind of a, it's like an offhand comment that Paul makes uh, to Timothy. So here's 1 Timothy 6, uh, verse 13. Paul is writing. He says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. And so what Paul is saying is this scene that we're looking at, what's going on? I mean, it's a, it's a criminal trial, but actually what's going on is Jesus is making the good confession about himself. Now that term, the good confession, is kind of interesting. We don't uh, usually use that very often. Uh, we use the verb form of confess a lot, to confess to a crime, to confess sin. Uh, but a confession is a formal statement outlining uh, essential religious doctrine for like an organization. So we have a confession of faith that, that as a church, the details of what we believe. And if you are a member of the church, these are the things that you, you must affirm. It kind of helps to know who is, who is in, who is part of this organization. These are the things that unify us, define us. Confessions are very, very powerful things. Uh, I was kind of developed a greater appreciation for this uh, when I heard uh, Al Mohler tell some of his story uh, from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm not sure if you know uh, Dr. Moeller, he's the president there. Uh, these days, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary is very, very strong, conservative, biblically rich, uh, orthodox institution. But decades ago, like in the 70s and 80s, it was not that. Uh, it, it, over years of sort of theological drift, had become very watered down, uh, very, very liberal, very poor biblical interpretation, very liberal theology. Same kind of thing that's happening to many schools and churches um, throughout North America. So Al Mohler was brought in to kind of get things back on track. And uh, the issue, of course, was, was the faculty. I heard him tell the story of how he did this. And it, like any educational institution, the faculty really is going to sort of determine where you're at theologically and kind of the direction that you're going. And at that time, uh, the faculty of Southern was uh, very liberal for the most part and very militant. And so Al Mohler's strategy was to remind them, begin by reminding them, look, uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary has a confession. It is a confessional institution. 
In fact, they had a confession of faith that went back over 100 years. And it was very orthodox, very biblical, very conservative. And the confession had not changed, just that everyone else had drifted. And they weren't holding to that anymore. So he began a process of, of holding individually each staff member to this confession. And basically, if they couldn't affirm it, then they would be fired. And if they could, then, then they could stay. It was, as he tells it, very stressful, very contentious. But eventually, the confession of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary won the day, and they, and they were back on track as an institution. So a confession is what defines an organization, what unifies its members, and what protects it from any sense of, of drift. In this case, Jesus is making the good confession about himself and about his, his organization in a sense, about who he is, what he's doing. And as we saw in verse 36, it has everything to do with his kingdom. That's, that's how he explains it. He explains it in terms of his kingdom and him as a king. Now next week, we're going to look at the verses 37 and 38, which is more about the nature of his kingship. But here, he talks about the nature of his kingdom. And so we're going to look first and see what does he say about his kingdom. And then uh, we're going to take some application points for us today. Like, what does this mean for us today? So three points. The first one is this. The kingdom of Jesus is spiritual. Spiritual. It's basically what he says. Look again. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Now, this is essential that we understand this. If we are followers of Jesus already, maybe we're just interested in what, what is Christianity? What does this mean? It, it's primarily a spiritual thing, a spiritual kingdom. That's the, the clear implication. If it's not of this world, this material, physical world, then it must be spiritual in nature. It's pretty clear but it's, it's a difficult thing to grasp, even if you know Jesus very well. Uh, for example, the night before this all took place, uh, Jesus was arrested. Uh, the Roman uh, legion was sent out. The Jewish leaders led the way. They, they arrested Jesus. And if you remember that scene, uh, Peter, he, he tried to do the thing that Jesus said his kingdom is not about. Uh, look at Matthew 26. And, and behold... One of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. He's making a distinction of those who were of the world and those who were of his kingdom. He's saying, that's, that's not what we're about, Peter. That's not the kind of thing that I'm, that I'm starting, which is very strange. Very difficult for human beings to grasp. Think of Peter. He's been with him for three years. He still doesn't quite get it, right? Because, because why? Because all of the kingdoms that we know, all the nations that we know are primarily concerned with physical things. But Jesus is not. Like, he's not concerned with geography. He's not really interested in where the boundaries are, physically speaking. He isn't concerned with wealth or resources, He's not calling anyone to, to tax, right? We're not taxing to support this kingdom. He's not concerned with military power, with swords, with fighter jets. He doesn't, he isn't concerned with any of those things, which again is, is difficult for us to grasp because that's the only kind of kingdom that we really know. Every nation, every kingdom is concerned with those, those kinds of things. If you think of what's going on in the Ukraine, that, that's what it's about. Putin, he wants 
greater geography. He wants more land. He wants more resources. He wants more power. That's his whole motivation. More of those things. And Ukraine has no choice but to defend those things, to maintain their sovereignty as a nation. Rome was concerned with those things as well. That's why Jesus had to ask the question, right? Who, like, who's asking if I'm king? Like, what do you mean as, as king? Because I'm not a king like Rome thinks of, of kings. My kingdom is different. It's spiritual. It's, it's not of the world, which is a clear mark of, of what it means to be Christian. Okay, it's our identity and our purpose. Uh, we're told that we should be in the world, but not of the world. Jesus was praying about this just a couple of chapters earlier in John 17, uh, praying to the Father about his, his people. Uh, he says this, uh, John 17, 15 and 16, I do not ask, ask that you take them, my followers, uh, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He's saying, uh, look, as, as people who are part of the kingdom, we shouldn't go off and just make a little commune somewhere in this world, right? Cut off from the world, buy some land, put up some fences, just have a little holy kind of huddled there. That's not, that's not what we should be. We are in the world, but we should not be of the world. Meaning our, our priorities, our concerns, our strategies, our behavior should be different from the way of the world. And as an example, Jesus says, look, we, the church, we should not be fighting back physically against those who oppose Jesus or the church, which is, which is different even from other religious ideologies. Uh, as, as an example, uh, here's a, a picture of Salman Rushdie. Uh, if you know him, he's an author. And the reason he has that lens blacked out is he was uh, stabbed 12 times back in August uh, by a 24-year-old a Muslim man named Hadi Matar, who was acting on a fatwa, a death sentence that was put upon Rushdie uh, 30 years ago by the Ayatollah Khomeini, the Islamic leadership in Iran, uh, because Salman Rushdie had written a book called The Satanic Verses they felt was critical of the Muslim faith, and so they, they felt like they needed to, to protect, to defend, to attack. Now, not all Muslims, many Muslims would not condone this at all, but this segment said, no, this is, this is our idea of the kingdom of God that we need to defend Allah. We need to go and we need to do harm to those who might somehow impugn his, his character. And, and what we're seeing here, just we need to be clear, Jesus is saying, the kingdom I'm building is a, is a different kind of kingdom. It, it's, that should not be our goals as a church. It clearly was not Jesus's goals of any kind of military power, military strength. He had much bigger goals. If you look at what Jesus explained to Peter, remember it, this whole process, him being arrested, him being put on trial, the whole time he had all of the material power in the universe at his disposal. He's the son of God. He made, he made the world, all of it, but he didn't use any of it because his kingdom is concerned with spiritual advances, not physical ones. And he goes on to explain this to Peter after the whole sword thing. He says to him, uh, Matthew 26, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and that he will send uh, at once send me more than 12 legions of angels, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? He's saying, Peter, you think I can't stop this? I just stop my finger, I can stop. There'll be thousands of angels descending from heaven to defend me. It would be a resounding military victory. Rome would be flattened in a second. But while that would be a great military 
Success, spiritually speaking, it would be a loss because then the scriptures wouldn't be fulfilled. I wouldn't go to the cross. All of humanity would still be enslaved in sin. The, the mercy and forgiveness of God would not be proclaimed by the, my work on the cross. These are the things that Jesus cares about. The spiritual gains is what he wants in the world. He wants for us because he knows those gains bring a good that will last forever. Will bring a glory to God forever. This is the kind of kingdom that he has come to establish and that is growing. And, and for us, we should be thinking to ourselves, if these are the things that Jesus cares about, this is what his kingdom is about, then we should care about these same things. So here's, here's the first point of application for us. In light of this truth, that the kingdom of Jesus is a spiritual kingdom, we, if you're a follower of Jesus, we should be driven by spiritual concerns. Just think about what that means for a moment. Because it's, it's a hugely defining characteristic of the Christian church. That our goals are primarily spiritual goals. It doesn't mean that we ignore physical needs or material needs. There's a lot in the Bible about us um, about that kind of thing, right? We're, we're commanded to provide for our family. It means we should make sure those that we have responsibilities for, they can, they can eat, they have enough food. We're told to pay our taxes, clearly. We're called to care for those in need, like widows and orphans. That's, that's true religion, we're told. Uh, we're told to work for the good of the cities that we live in. And, and we do all those things as a church, or we, we try to. That's what... Uh, Part of our giving campaign was about at Christmas. We, we raised money for City Reach Society, Christian charity in the lower, lower mainland, primarily tasked. Their, their, their goal is to feed those who are hungry, to care for those practical needs. That's a good thing. We should, be, we should be known for that as a church. It communicates the love of God. But unlike the world, we, we, should, also, we should do this with the knowledge that all of those good things are, are temporarily good. They're limited in the amount of good that they can actually bring into people's lives. We should be driven by the greater desire to see spiritual transformation because spiritual transformation brings deeper change. It brings lasting good. I remember uh, Norm Funk, Pastor Norm, uh, who uh, was pastor of Westside Church, one of the churches that helped to plant us. Uh, he told a story one time uh, of when uh, he first planted Westside Church in Kitsilano and, uh, was years ago, and someone was sort of having a conversation with him about, about the church, kind of challenging him a bit, sort of saying, look, what, what is your church doing for the city, for the city of Vancouver? Like, what good? There's a lot of needs in the city of Vancouver. Are you, are you seeking to help with any of those needs? And Norm's response was, absolutely. Like, we, we want to and are trying to care practically for the, the needs of the people in the city of Vancouver, but he said... Uh, our greatest demonstration of love are, are not those things. The greatest demonstration of love that we have for the city is that we planted a church in the city of Vancouver where people can come and hear the gospel because our, our conviction is that the greatest needs for the city of Vancouver are spiritual needs. That that really is, is the source of desperation. And so the best way to love people is to bring spiritual help. And I just, I wonder uh, sometimes if, if we as individuals and as a church, if we really believe that, like if that really is what drives us, I wonder if we have that same mindset for ourselves, for the people around us, like think of when we're making plans for our lives, right? The things that we want to see happen. Are, are there any spiritual goals on that list usually? 
Or are they primarily material, physical things? Like are sort of the plans for our lives dominated by things like relationships, things like uh, career goals, educational goals, financial stability, family plans, travel plans, retirement plans. These, these, these are all good things. Hear me. You should have a plan for all those things. Um, but what about spiritual goals? On your list, are there, are there things like, man, I really, what I really want to see happen in my life is that over the next season that I would come to know Jesus more deeply. That I would, that I would understand him. Or I'd feel more connected with him. That I would grow in Christ-likeness. That, that I would grow in spiritual maturity or good character. What I really want, what I'm really praying for and looking to see happen is that the Holy Spirit would, that there'd be fruit, spiritual fruit that would grow in me. That I want to get a better understanding of my spiritual gifts and that I would seek to see how I could use them to build up, up the church. All of these things are in scripture that God, these are God's goals for us. Do we have these goals? See, if the kingdom of Jesus is not of this world, you have to wonder sometimes if we're part of that kingdom, why we are so concerned that we don't have all of what the world has to offer. I think that tends to, to drive a lot of my thinking, a lot of my actions, that there's these lists of things that I don't yet have or need to get. We should be asking ourselves, like, what, what do we really need? What would be really helpful? More of the world or, or more of, of Christ? More, more of the spiritual abundance that he has already given us? This should influence uh, every aspect of our lives and, and also all of the relationships in our lives. Um, I'm thinking of the people around us, like our, our family and friends, those who are fairly close to us. What are our concerns for them? Like, can we see through the, the kind of earthly, physical concerns that are making their lives challenging to the spiritual state of their soul? Because if we look at someone that way, it makes a huge difference in terms of how we care for them. Uh, for example, imagine that you have a, a friend, she's in school, she's in grad school, and she's super overwhelmed because it's grad school and she's got, you know, tons to do, she's working all, you know, life of a student. Uh, what would be the best way that, that we could care for her as, as our friend? There's certainly some, you know, sort of tangible, physical things we can do. We can, we can invite her over for dinner, we can feed her something, we can help her study if it's not like science or math or anything like that, or other things that we know. We can try to practically help her, and, and we should. But if we really want to care for her, then we should be looking to care for her on a spiritual level. We should have our ears up, like recognizing some of the, the kinds of stress that she's enduring. We should maybe notice that she gets very, very anxious when it comes to certain assignments, certain midterms, and at the right time, we might engage her in dialogue and just ask her a question. You know, boy, why do you think it is that you're so very anxious around uh, these tests. It, it, it seems like there's maybe something more going on than just you want to do well. Like just I've noticed, I wonder, do you think it could be that you're trying to prove something or earn something? Do you think there's a fear here of failure of what might happen if you don't do well? These are questions that get to a deeper spiritual plane where we're seeking to care for her soul. See, a, a Christian response to anxiety is not just to bake her some cookies, although they are great, and I would invite them. Um, 
But really, we want to remind the people in our lives about the spiritual truths, if, if they're believers, right? Look, remember the things that are true of you. God loves you. God has a plan for you. Regardless of how you do on this test, you are accepted. You are loved. The, this is the difference. This is what Jesus is trying to say here, that, that he has a kingdom that goes deeper. It's a spiritual kingdom. It goes to the heart of humanity's true problems, true joys. And so because his concerns are for our spiritual good, we should be driven by those same concerns to care for the people around us, to think about it in, in, in our own context and, and for the people that we know and love. Uh, the third point, the next way that we should kind of apply this in light of the fact that, that the kingdom of Jesus is a spiritual kingdom and we are part of it, we should be satisfied with spiritual blessings. Uh, I think I don't know about you, but I think one of the challenges uh, for me, uh, knowing that the kingdom of Jesus is a spiritual kingdom, knowing that I am part of it, but that I'm living in a material world with a physical body, it's very easy for me to forget that I already have everything that I need in Christ. That, that it's, it's already all there for me. Uh, Ephesians 1.3 says basically this. It says, Blessed be the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Think about what that picture, like the pantry of heaven opens and just everything on the shelf is brought out and, and given to us in Christ. We have everything, right? Every spiritual blessing. I'm not sure about you, but I don't always feel like, like I have every spiritual blessing, every good thing that God would want from me. I don't, I don't feel like that. I have to remind myself of that because a lot of the times I, I feel empty. I feel anxious. I feel needy or weary. And, and that's because those feelings come from a combination of what's going on out here and what's going on in here. That's what all of us as human beings struggle with, right? The circumstances of life out there and the broken state of our, of our minds and our hearts in here, they conspire together to afflict us with worry, with concern, with heartache. We're part of it. We're complicit. It's not like it's done to us, right? We're allowing that to happen. But the main problem, I mean, the first problem is we don't even realize there is a problem sometimes. We don't even realize that there's this, this struggle. We're feeling it, but we don't know what the, that there's a real problem deeper inside of us. I was reminded of this uh, this week. I heard this, this great interview with uh, an actress. Her name is uh, Ellen Burstyn. Some of you who are, are older might recognize her. She's been around for a while. She, I think she's 90 now. Uh, she has won everything. She's won Oscars. She's won, uh, I think, every award that there is. Um, but she told a story of very early on in her acting career in, in the 50s. Uh, she became involved with the Actors Studio, which is uh, this place in New York that is for professional actors to come and basically hone their craft uh, under the, the, the tutelage of uh, this famous acting coach. Someone else started it, but, but Lee Strasberg is the one who was there. He, he, I mean, he trained everyone, uh, Pacino, De Niro, all these guys, they came to him. And so she was a young actor at the time, and she tells the story of the first session she had at the actor's studio. So you can imagine about 20 people in a room. Lee Strasberg is there, and he would ask certain people to, to get up. And the first exercise he always had them do was to, to make their morning cup, is, is what he called it meaning you, you make your morning cup of coffee. They're actors, right? They're pretending to make their morning cup of coffee. So he calls her up. There's like five of them, and uh, they're just doing their, their thing. And uh, he looks down his list, and he, and he says, Ellen. And she stops. 
And he says, no, 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 keep, keep going. Keep making your, your cup. So she's doing her thing. And after a long pause, uh, he says to her, uh, Ellen, do you ride horses? And she says, well, I used to. He said, did you ride well? She said, well, yes, yes, pretty well. I had my own horse. Long pause. He says, well, Ellen, you don't have to ride that cup. She says, what? He says, go on, make a mistake. Make a mistake on, do it. You, you can make a mistake. As she tells the story, she says, I broke down in tears. Started to sob uncontrollably. She said, she cried for the next two weeks because of that moment. And I thought to myself, what a, what a fascinating window into someone's heart. That just through, through that challenge of making a mistake, she's, she's come undone. Why? She, she, said, she said after, he saw something that was part of my conditioning that I needed to stop and I didn't know how. And, and of course, it goes beyond just acting, right? There is something there deep inside her. She didn't even know it was a problem. She didn't even know it was there. The way that whatever it was, the way she was treated, the way she was raised, the way she was wired, how she saw herself in the world had brought her to a place where she was, she was terrified of failure, terrified of making a mistake. And he was, he was able to see through that and identify a problem that she did not even know was there. And I thought to myself, this is not just Ellen Burstyn's issue. All of us are in this situation. All of us have things deep inside that we have either willingly tried to mask over and ignore or just subconsciously hidden in some way. And it's not until they are revealed that we can hope to find some sense of peace with them. So the first challenge is to know that it's there, but the even greater challenge is to actually find peace and find healing for those deep hurts and disappointments of our soul. And, and that is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about his spiritual kingdom and the spiritual blessings that he has, he has acquired for us at the cross. He has given us everything that we need so that we might have peace, even at the, the deepest, darkest parts of our soul. And if you look at some of the rest of that passage in Ephesians, you can see some of these things. It says, look at verse four, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Think about what that is saying about the believer, the Christian, that God chose us before the foundation of the world, meaning, meaning he chose us knowing all of our sin, knowing of all of our failures. He didn't choose us when we came to the point of believing in him. He chose us way before, and he wanted us. What, is that, what does that tell us for those of us who struggle with a sense of shame, struggle with a sense of desire for acceptance, that, that he, has, he has said that he would make us holy and righteous, by his power, and look, it goes on. Why? In love he did this. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Think about the difference that we were once orphans and now we are adopted into the family of God. Think of all that comes with that. And the amount of time that we spent seeking the approval of others, seeking to be included in, in certain whatever it is, things in this world, and yet we've been welcomed in to the very family of God. And each morning we can wake up and know that to be true. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We are redeemed. We don't have to feel guilty. We don't have to act out of a sense of, of failure or uncertainty. 
He's forgiven us and there are riches. He lavishes them upon us. See, everyone who has faith in Jesus has all of these things already by his power and strength and grace and love and they are made tangible in our lives by the Holy Spirit. But a lot of the time, we're, we're looking to the world, are we not? Like we kind of forget about all of those things and we look to the thing that's right in front of us. And it's no surprise why we do this, no mystery, because the world is right there. We wake up and we see it. The people in our lives, the, the pressures, the tensions, the potential pleasures are, are all right there. And so the effects are more immediate and more tangible. Like working hard to do everything right generally leads to the approval of others, which feels great. We like that. We want that. Uh, rewarding ourselves with, with pleasurable material things feels good. Or if we're wired differently, denying ourselves of those things feels, feels good. We, we use the material world, uh, I was thinking of it like, like a drugstore. You know, and our lives are really just spent trying to figure out the right drug and the right dosage for us to kind of get through, get through life. But what this is reminding us of is that we, we actually have everything we need in the medicine cabinet at home. We have acceptance, we have forgiveness, we have love, we have hope, we have redemption. It's all available in ample supply. The real challenge, I think, is actually uh, taking hold of it. And that, I think, is the question. How do, we, how do we do that? How do we, if we're seeing this, how do we actually feel it and know it to be true? There's a lot of ways, probably, but one, one thing I thought that might be helpful is to think of our relationship with food. Uh, I'm not sure about you, but uh, my emotional state is very much tied to how full or empty I am with food. Uh, it's gotten to the point that like when Don and I are going on date nights, I, I sometimes don't even talk on the way to the restaurant because I'm hungry, I'm grumpy, I'm like, you can't even talk, you know, be pleasant. But then once food gets, I take a few bites, all of a sudden we're in love again, we can talk with each other, it's fantastic. It's not an excuse to be grumpy when you're hungry, I'm just saying that's, that's how we are, right? That's how physically things tend to work. When my belly is full, I'm full of hope, and when my belly is empty, I'm full of despair, we should think of that in terms of the spiritual resources that are there at our disposal. We shouldn't just fill our belly. We should feast on the spiritual blessings that we already have in Christ. How do we do that? The only way to feast is to begin by understanding that you are empty. Look at Matthew 5, 3. Jesus says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The spiritual kingdom that Jesus is talking about, who gets it? The ones who are poor, who, who, who realize that they are not full. Why? Because if we think we're full, if we're grabbing from the world and, and we are distracted and deceived, then we're, we really have no appetite or interest in the spiritual things. And so we were, you know, feasting on candy and things that are are not gonna do any real good for us if we come to the place of recognizing our need spiritually, that we are sinners, that we are far from God, that we are orphans. And then we come to Jesus. Then we're in a place where we can, we can really receive all that he's done for us. So we need to see our need. And then we need to do the work of understanding what exactly he has, um, he has got for us. Like, what did the cross actually do? And that's where a passage like Ephesians is really helpful. If we spend some time, not just, not just reading through it, 
right? It's good to, to go through your Bible in a year and read through big chunks. That's good. But it's also good to stop and to think through these words and say, what, what does it actually mean that I was an orphan before Christ? And what does it mean now that I'm, a, that I'm adopted? What does it mean that I'm blameless in the eyes of God? I don't know. I feel that way. Journal about it. Think about it. Talk with people about it. We're doing the work of, of understanding the spiritual blessings that we have. It'll be a lot easier to receive them if we understand and see personally how they fit for us as individuals. And the last thing, the toughest thing sometimes, is to live with the conviction that everything on that list there in Ephesians is true for us whether we feel like it is or not. I think that's the challenge. That there's sometimes we feel full of the Spirit. This is great, everything's going well. But there's other times where we feel, we feel empty. And the life of faith means that we go to the word and we say, this is true of me. I'm convinced, I'm convicted that this is true of me, even if I don't feel it right now. I'm gonna live in a way that demonstrates that I know this to be true of me, even if emotionally or whatever it is, I don't feel it in the moment. That we walk forward in faith, uh, believing, affirming these things to be true. This is what it means to hold to the good confession that Jesus is talking about. That, that we trust and believe that Jesus, our King, has already given us everything that we need in Him and that His kingdom is not of the world and we are not of the world, but we can live in this world fully satisfied with everything that He has given to us. Fully committed to working through the, the hard times in faith, trusting that He is for us. And fully committed to helping the people in our lives to know him in the same way. So it's okay if we make mistakes. It's good for us to take risks for the sake of, of God, put ourselves in positions where we might fail because we know that in his eyes, uh, we are always accepted. We're always loved. We always have the answers that we need to the biggest questions and the deepest longings of our heart and they, they all come down to Jesus himself. So as I close in prayer, my hope is that the Spirit of God will highlight for each one of us where it is that we are forgetting the blessings that he has for us and where it is that he wants us to, to step out in faith, trusting that these things are true, even when we may not feel it in the moment. So let me pray that for us as we close. Lord Jesus, I confess that we often undervalue the things that you have done for us on the cross. We, we often uh, forget, frankly, just all that we have, all that you've done for us as your people. Lord, we thank you for, for this good confession that, that you spoke uh, before Pilate. Lord, in, in the midst of you actually um, going to the cross to acquire, to get all of these blessings for us, Lord, you, you made clear that you have a spiritual kingdom. Your, your goals are spiritual goals and that they are the best goals for us. That if we know them to be true and we walk in them, we will be a, a satisfied people. Not always a, a happy, slap-happy people, Lord. There's times of sorrow to be sure. But we can be a people who are at peace in every circumstance. And, and we have help for others, regardless of what is going on in their lives. So Lord, would you help us in that? Would you help us to, to set spiritual goals for our lives, to seek to to be with you and what you want to see happen in our lives and also, Lord, to see others in the same way 
and to extend that love and that grace and that help, that truth, uh, that we would be a blessing to the people around us. So please, Lord, would, would, you, uh, would you visit yourself, Lord, with us? Would you, would you draw us into connection with us? And Lord, I pray that as we do that, we would, and we would just remember all that you've done and we would worship you all the more. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.